Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on iHeart, Radio MD, or wherever you download us from. Thank you very much for doing that. Do feel free to tell your friends about us and do rate us weekly. And if you have some ideas that you want us to have as a special guest, feel free to email us at wenway.com, info at wenway.com. Our guest today, this is the B segment, 1059B um, of our podcast, is Dr. Mark Sims, a board-certified neurotologist, which is um, someone who specializes in the nervous system of hearing. Um, and hearing is so vitally important. It's vitally important for preventing dementia and all kinds of other things. And obviously, we're losing it at a greater degree than we should. That's because noises in our environment are too loud, but maybe I don't understand it. So that's why we have Dr. Sims here, because he's an expert on it. He has written the book, Listen Up, A Physician's Guide to Effectively Treating Your Hearing Loss. It's available on Amazon. Just put in Listen Up in the book line at Amazon, and you'll find that wonderful resource that Dr. Sims, S-Y-M-S, has created. Um, And as usual today, we are brought to you by Bovine Colostrum, Life's First Bovine Colostrum, Life's First Naturals, is the manufacturer of that. They have it, and it helps protect you against um, the effects of non-steroidals, and including aspirin and Advil and ibuprofen and all the varieties of non-steroidals on gut and on leaky gut cutting the, the villi, which should be nice and long. Normally, non-steroidals and aspirin can shorten those. Great news is that bovine colostrum does help keep them in their natural state. How does it do it? Well, that's complex, but in any case, you can go to Lysfurch's Naturals and find out much more They have randomized, multiple randomized control trials showing the benefits um, for both that and preventing upper respiratory infections um, done mainly in athletes, but again, a randomized control trials. Now let's turn to Dr. Mark Sims. He is a hearing loss physician and the the most important thing I think I can tell you is that your hearing is really important um, for preventing brain dysfunction. But let's talk to him. Dr. Sims, how did you get involved in this field? Why did you choose otolaryngology or the, the, the ear? Um, typically, uh, like most many physicians, through mentorship, I come from a family of physicians. My father was a physician. Uh, my eldest brother is a physician. He's actually an otolaryngologist as well. So he kind of showed me what it entailed. So that that's how I ended up in, in this field. Do you practice together? We do not. He practices in San Antonio, and um, I practice in um, Phoenix. 
and we're probably better brothers than perhaps practice partners. So it might might be for the better. And you studied at the famous Hose uh, Ear Clinic in Los Angeles, um, which obviously treats many of the great um, vocal stars and band members of olden era who didn't wear ear protection. Um, I suppose, when did ear protection come in vogue? It's been around for, you know, probably uh, the 70s did people really start. I think uh, with um, the advent of the Vietnam War, actually, I think people uh, really became appreciative of it. But noise exposure and causing hearing loss was known way before that. I mean, they talked about it, you know, their references to a bell maker's ear. So people who made bells had had hearing loss. So we were aware that noise caused it, but making it a full concerted effort to prevent uh, has probably been in the past 50 years or so. Although, you know, with uh, teenagers and others being exposed to personal devices, perhaps we're having a relapse or a worsening of the problem. Now, one of the great things I saw about a proposal in the Medicare bill that's in front of Congress, the Medicare extension bill, was that they're finally going to do something about hearing for seniors um, and hearing aids. Hearing aids, how did they not get covered um, during the Medicare bill passage? Why did they exclude hearing aids? At the time, hearing aids were uh, sold by door-to-door salespeople. So the same people who sold uh, Fuller Brushes, Encyclopedia Britannical, Rolpolical Globes on a door-to-door basis were also selling um, hearing aids. So the uh, the statute, the law that establishes Medicare, actually has a provision that says Medicare shall not uh, pay for hearing aids. So it's actually, it's not that the people who run Medicare don't want to do it. It's there is a law prohibiting it. And um, is is that going to be, do you know, is that in the bill that changes it? I, I saw it was in the news that it was going to be changed. But to me, that's such an important thing because many people um, don't get their hearing. Um, in fact, how many people do have hearing loss in the United States? It's over 40 million people. So the sad statistics are only 20% of people who have hearing loss that's treatable, treat it. And of those 20%, only a third are well treated. So we're looking at about seven or 8% of people with a treatable hearing loss have appropriately treated hearing loss. And that's just amazing that it is that low. Um, And now, shouldn't our phones be able to, I mean, we've got all kinds of apps. You would think they would build a app into the phone that adjusts, that lets people themselves adjust their hearing aids. Have, have any of the companies done that? Has Apple done that or um, Google or someone? Yes, they are. They're, they're adjustable. I mean, I think one of the things, though, is, is there is a difference between your actual measured hearing loss and your perception of your hearing loss. So although you want people to have a pleasant hearing experience, it doesn't mean that people are actually able to adjust their hearing aids to the point where they get themselves back to normal. Um, you know, it'd be similar to you just kind of trying to figure out what your blood pressure is and kind of taking care of it yourself. I mean, it's not, people aren't very good at perceiving their hearing loss is, is the real answer. My wife tells me that all the time. Um, <laughs> and, Which means uh, you probably have a hearing loss. Oh, I definitely do. I mean, I get I get tested yearly, and the 
the good news is it's been sta- my high frequency hearing loss has been stable for the last uh, 24 years. So I've been tested yearly, but I had it when I started. Um, not, I don't know when I started in life, but I, when I started getting my hearing tested. Um, and the what prompted you? The the book we should say is an outstanding book um, called Listen Up. A Physician's Guide to Effectively Treating Your Hearing Loss. I can tell you when I received it from um, the our um, producer, uh, Donna Gould, who's just wonderful. When I received it from her, I uh, started to read it immediately. I put it down on a table in my office, and uh, one of my patients absconded with it. So I only got to read about the first third of it before I, I lost the book to a patient. Um, but in any So it must be outstanding. The patient hasn't returned it yet. Whoever that patient is, I don't know. But in any case, um, what, what prompted you to write the book? Sure. I, I think there are two things. Uh, you know, my, my particular interest in hearing loss is uh, I had an older brother who um, had a uh, brain tumor diagnosed in his teenage years, and he had whole brain radiation. And uh, one of the unfortunate consequences of whole brain radiation over the long term can oftentimes be a progressive hearing loss. So he developed a hearing loss in his 20s that uh, worsened into his 30s and 40s. So kind of firsthand, I watched um, the deterioration of his uh, ability to communicate how that impacted his relationships with other people. So I had kind of an early exposure firsthand to what the impacts of hearing loss are. Um, the second thing is, is, you know, when I started out my practice and I continue to have a very robust surgical practice, one of the things is I would resolve people's ear surgical disease and I tell them they need to go get their hearing loss treated. And a good percentage of them would come back and say, well, I'd say, well, here, look at your chart. I, I you know, I, the, the discussion a year ago was for you to treat your hearing loss. And many of them say, well, I tried, I tried multiple places and I went to all these places and I, and I couldn't, they, they didn't make a difference or I didn't, you know, there were a lot of reasons. And so at that point I developed an interest of like, why are people, do they know they have a hearing loss that needs to be treated yet it doesn't get treated well. And, and so that's one of the explorations in the book. And then it's, so it's, why does hearing loss matter? Why isn't it necessarily treated well? And what do you need to do to treat it well? I mean, and so, you know. Let's go into why you need to get it treated. Let me go and give you an example. My mother-in-law, who unfortunately died this year at 101 and a half, um, had hearing aids since about 19, since, since about uh, 1995 or so. But she hated to wear them. And she, we went through three different, fi- finally she found, um, I'm at the Cleveland Clinic and, and the otolaryngology department here has a specialist who helps people um, adjust their hearing aids. And finally, but she still, even when it was perfect hearing with her hearing aids, she hated to wear them. Um, why, why, and I think so, we've got to make the point, why is it so important to wear them? and to get treatment? Well, I think, you know, you touched on kind of the medical punchline is, is that it, it, it is associated with normal cognition, normal connection and stuff. And that probably has to do with, you know, staying connected socially as well as the uh, cognitive load of compensating for your hearing loss. Because people compensate for their hearing loss with speech reading, looking at people's face, mouth and lips, 
and with context, once they know what you're talking about, they can fill in the blank. So, so the uh, example I always use is I went to the bank to withdraw honey or I went to the bank to withdraw money. Well, we all know it's the second, not the first, because contextually you don't get honey at a bank. And so using those skills, you get cognitive uh, overload or overuse and that leads that. The, the other reason is, is frankly, your hearing keeps you independent. It makes it so, you know, you can continue to take care on your own. And frankly, it makes it so the younger generation doesn't kind of look at you and say, oh, you're kind of slipping. You, you can't take care of yourself anymore. And that's kind of one of the things that people kind of dread is maybe that conversation where their kids are telling them, look, you can't remain independent. And it's about connections, right? It's about doing appearing on podcasts and producing podcasts. It's about connecting with your your family, your friends, your loved ones, and and normal hearing is is essential to being able to you know robustly socially interact. So that's why it's so important to people, and to it should be important to people. And you mentioned your brother was also a an ENT, ear, nose, throat, otolaryngologist. Yes, different brother, I assumed. Um, was he also motivated by your other brother's, uh, if you will, hearing problem? Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think so. Him and I actually have never um, sat down and actually discussed that, at the, you know, um, but I believe that would be the case. Um, you know, the, the, the having a brain tumor and having um, a hearing loss both, I mean, one of the things that, uh, people in my field do deal with our uh, tumors between the ear and the brain as well. And I think for him, it was a mix of those two things. Now, why, um, why is it so difficult for people to get fitted with hearing aids? And why are hearing aids so relatively expensive compared to, for example, um, a, a cell phone? Well, I think there are multiple things. One is, is is hearing aids are not expensive. Hearing aids with the appropriate service and care around them is expensive. I mean, similar to when you build a house, the most expensive cost of building a house is not the sticks or the drywall, it's the labor. And so I think that that's probably the fundamental uh, philosophical problem or issue is, is I always tell people there's a difference between getting hearing aids and getting your hearing loss well treated. If you're going to get hearing aids, um, you, sh you can just shop for the cheapest price. I often encourage people to go to the same place where they buy meat, trash bags, and toilet paper, and they can pick up a flat screen TV as they pick up their hearing aids. If you want to get your hearing loss well treated, it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's actually directly related to the, the skill and the care and the quality and the custom prescription, which is really important, that the uh, care provider will give to you. That's really uh, the kind of the crux of it. And so the hearing aids, uh, the manufacturers have um, algorithms or programs that will generate generic prescriptions in your hearing aids and actually 85% of people with hearing aids walking around have uh, generic prescriptions in, but that's not a custom prescription for your ear with your hearing loss and your hearing instrument. And that, that, that is an essential part. The other part is the counseling component to explain to people what it's going to be like for them and what the limitations are and where they will and won't hear better and what they should expect with the instrument. And so those are other things, you know, kind of touching on one of the things you touched at the beginning. It is true. Um, I mean, there's probably two movements afoot uh, to increase access to hearing care. One is, is over-the-counter hearing aids are coming, 
where you can buy them yourself. And then there is a movement to having Medicare coverage. Now, in you know the cover in Europe, hearing aids are um, actually part of the healthcare system, and they actually have about the same penetration rate as we do, about twenty percent. So I'm not sure it's really true that it's just price. Well, how do you then encourage? How do we encourage? How does? Let's just say we've got a a woman listening to this um, who thinks her husband needs this or her mother needs this, either one, how do you, what would you tell her to, how does she get her loved one to go to someone like you to get the expert care they need to be able to um, wear a hearing aid or wear or get help sure. for their hearing problem? Well, I think first off, if you contextualize the problem in terms of the person with the hearing loss, the, the most natural response is for people to become defensive. So if you're going to put it on them and, you know, I hear patients, you know, some my kids are snapping at me to get hearing aids and things like that. I don't think that that's as motivating as to talk about how the hearing loss affects you. So to go to your loved one and say, you know, one of the problems is, is with your hearing loss, I have to repeat things. And when I repeat things, I'll do it twice. And then after I do it two times, I kind of think, forget it. And as that happens, you and I are becoming less and less connected. This is really impacting um, our relationship. Your grandchildren all know you have a hearing loss and they don't want to really have conversations with you. So your hearing loss is really affecting a lot of your connectivity with the people around you that you want to be connected. I think that that's a much stronger motivation than just kind of saying to people, you need to get hearing aids. The other thing is, is go and get both of your hearings tested, right? So there's a good chance that maybe, you know, sometimes in couples, uh, one person thinks they have good hearing, the other one has bad hearing. Sometimes it's the first one has hearing loss and the second one has worse hearing loss. So oftentimes in couples, the person with the better, the least bad hearing thinks they have the normal hearing. So go ahead and both of you go get hearing tests so, you know, you can kind of share with each other how it impacts them. Because one of the things is, is fundamentally that's interesting about hearing loss is you don't know what you don't hear. So it's kind of an interesting thing as compared to positive symptoms in other diseases, hearing loss is a negative symptom. You no longer experience something. And so it's very hard for people to assess themselves. So let me go and just say something about my own hearing. And, and then, so I often ask my wife to repeat things, which she does willingly. Um, but the... Mm, when you when I get tested, I was in I had an explosion uh, during the Vietnam era. Although I wasn't in Vietnam, I was at National Institute of Health. We had a cyclopropane explosion, which is when my hearing went um, to heck, if you will, in not to heck if that I can't hear, obviously. But that's when I have this high frequency. I assume when that started wasn't for about 20, whatever it is, some years afterwards that I first got my hearing tested that I remember. I probably did at that time because I saw I had two uh, holes in eardrums. But I um, then went to, they healed. And so my hearing is said to be stable. What do I worry about on that? Or will that stability decline with time? Or is there a period when you stay stable? 
I wouldn't expect the noise and dose component of your hearing to get worse, meaning your hearing loss from that noise should not progress. If you're going to have a progressive hearing loss, it's more likely a hearing loss of aging that's genetic. Um, you know, 80% of 80-year-olds have a treatable hearing loss. So as you approach that age, it becomes more and more um, likely. I mean, the other thing that's actually kind of interesting, if you look at an audiogram, it has typically decibels and the intensity that you have to turn up the volume for people to, de uh, to detect the sound. And so the first thing is, is decibel is a logarithmic scale similar to the Richter scale. So every 3 dB uh, change is actually a doubling of the sound intensity. The second thing is, is that's interesting is the, um, the concept of normal is between zero and 25 dB. Historically, that's not based on clinical standards. That's actually somebody just divided the audiogram up into different things. So people might have a 20 dB hearing loss and people will say, well, that's normal because it's within what we consider the normal range. But there's pretty good emerging research showing that people at the bottom part of normal actually have a functional hearing loss. And so um, I'm not sure, I, I don't look at your test per se, but I think that probably we're under treating even people that are at the lower part of normal. Um and will the um, and, and I this is will the Medicare? I, I guess they're rewriting the Medicare law. Is that correct? I believe they're trying to lift that exception. I mean, for for hearing yeah, aids. I, I mean, not not. I'm not telling you either way. But this is not the first attempt to do this. So we'll see see what happens. I mean, I'm hopeful. As a as a last parting, uh, if you will, information for us. And I, I don't mean uh, this, I, the book is Listen Up, um, and uh, it's on Amazon. The website is Listen Up Hearing, that's H-E-R-I-N-G dot com. Listen Up Hearing dot com is a way to find out more about this entire topic and about the book. And I really love the approach you've used, Dr. Sims. And, and Dr. Sims, by the way, is S-Y-M-S, -S, Mark J. Sims, S-Y-M-S. Um, I really like the approach you use on um, motivating a uh, friend, relative, family member to um, seek hearing treatment. When we say, I, I, I have one last uh, question, which since men get hearing loss faster than women, or is that just a perception? No, that's or true. Or is it be, and why is that? It's a genetic predisposition, I believe. Um, you know, it just, it's one of those uh, diseases that men get more than women do. And so presbycusis, which is, you know, the technical term for hearing loss of aging is more prevalent in the male population than the female population. And so even the motivations between the two are different, right? Men see oftentimes loss of hearing as a, a sign of weakness and, and women see treating their hearing loss as a way to stay connected. So even what what motivates them to do it or not do it or is different based on gender. So like many things, I mean, men, men, uh, you know, when uh, this is a long time ago, I was uh, um, lucky enough to uh, talk to people about flossing, and I learned that uh, women at that time, you know, this is 1999, uh, women floss 26% of the time regularly, men 11%. 
Um, thanks to uh, Oprah and her original show, um, we got it up to uh, 16% and 32% and received an award for that. But that still is only one-sixth of men and uh, one-third of women were flossing regularly and taking care of their teeth and gums that way. I suppose it, it's even worse with hearing when you think of the number who um, are getting appropriately treated when they actually have a real problem. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the number of people who have the disease is expanding faster than the treatment rate. And so we all know we call that an epidemic. And so I would say there's a hearing loss epidemic. Dr. Mark Sims has been our guest, the author of Listen Up. Um, and the rest of the subtitle of the book, Listen Up, is it is a physician's guide to effectively treating your hearing loss. It is available on Amazon and the website listenuphearing.com. This has been you, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast, 1059B, B again, our guests. And so, Mark, uh, thank you very much for appearing. Um, we are, of course, brought to you by Life's First Naturals. They produce bovine colostrum as well as a probiotic, true biotic. Uh, Life's First Naturals um, dot com is where you can order um, these products or learn more about them. Um, the bovine colostrum is uh, incredibly effective at preventing um, what we call the leaky gut syndrome or what many people complain of as bloating after they've been taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like ibuprofen or Advil or even baby aspirin. It's a great thing to take with those to help you prevent that leaky gut syndrome. Randomized controlled trials, multiple randomized controlled double-blind trials have been done. You can find those on that website, lifesfirstnaturals.com. Thank you for downloading us, and thank you, Dr. Sims, for being so um, gracious with both your time and your expertise. Listenuphearing.com. And again, thank you for downloading us, and thank you, Caitlin, for great engineering. We'll be back next week. We have an outstanding guest lined up. And remember, listen to the News of the Week, the A segment. It is the latest medical news and what it means to you. Thanks again.